Welcome back to another week on the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings at HStebbings with two B's on Snapchat and brought to you by the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. Now for the show today, we take a deep dive into the investor mindset of SaaS as we are joined by Scott Friend, Managing Director at Bain Capital Ventures, where he's made investments in the likes of Jet and Rent the Runway, just to name a few incredible companies. Scott joined Bain Capital Ventures in 2006 after selling the company he co-founded, ProfitLogic, to Oracle. At ProfitLogic, Scott saw the immense scaling of the company from its initial three founders to a 300-person global software and solutions business serving the retail industry. As a result, in 2005, Scott was named a winner of the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Following the acquisition, Scott was chairman of the Executive Advisory Board and VP of Marketing and Science for Oracle Retail. I also want to say a huge thanks to AJ Agarwal for the intro to Scott today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But enough from me, so without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to Scott Friend, Managing Director at Bain Capital ventures good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up scott it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today a huge thank you for joining me thank you for having me i'm excited to be here now i'd love to get started today with a two to three minute bio of you and how you made your way into the wonderful world of SaaS investing well i uh started many years ago as an entrepreneur i uh i was a co-founder of a company that sold big data and analytics software to major retailers Starting back in 1998, we sold that company to Oracle in 2005. And through that experience, I kind of cut my teeth, so to speak, in building a business that was both uh, kind of machine learning-oriented, data-oriented business a little bit before its time, as well as a SaaS business a little bit before its time. In that era, it wasn't called SaaS. We were, in fact, called an application service provider, I think, at the time. But what we did was take data from our customers, process it, and send back insights in and out location ran over the web and we charge on an annual fee for that. So we were an early version of the SaaS era and we were very much a big enterprise, big ticket, outside Salesforce kind of business. So I learned a lot about building a company of that nature through that experience. Bain Capital was my biggest investor and after we sold the company to Oracle and I spent a year at Oracle, I then came here 10 years ago as a partner and I've spent my time at Bain Capital focused predominantly on the world of commerce and on B2B software companies, typically SaaS companies that sell in that universe. Can I ask, you said about kind of pre-SaaS there and pre the, the phenomena that SaaS has been in the past couple of years. How have you seen the world of SaaS change and develop them from your early days with your own company to today? Well, there's both the technology side of how it's developed and then the sales and marketing side of how it's developed and certainly the investing side of how it's developed. Okay, let's go through these. But then you said about the three ways that it's different there. So let's start on the technology. How has it improved or developed? Technologically, I'll give you a great example. When we started Profit Logic in 1998, one of our earliest customers was a company called Hills Department Stores. No longer in business, not our fault, but no longer in business. And Hills Department Stores, uh, we were going to build a forecasting algorithm for them. And in order to do so, we agreed on a fee of fifty thousand dollars for the initial project, and then ultimately would have an annual fee to run the software. And to do the work that we had to do to configure our solution. 
solution. They sent us all their data in those days on cartridge tapes. These were mainframe database-oriented storage devices on cartridges. We had to rent mainframe time to load that data, and then we had to get Oracle up and running to process the data. By the time we were simply done setting up the data to do our analysis, we had spent $100,000. This was on a $50,000 project. I knew very quickly that wasn't such a terrific business. Roll the clock forward roughly 10 years. I backed as an investor my former chief scientist from ProfitLogic, who was building a very similar type of business. It was called C-Quotient. They were doing personalization for major retailers of email communications and online websites. And C-Quotient was taking an order of magnitude more data than we ever ingested at ProfitLogic. They were taking clickstream data and customer transaction data and offline sales data and merging that all together and developing profiles of customers and using that to do their work. Their first customer was the Children's Place, a big U.S. retailer. They received a million dollars for their initial project. And when they went to load the data to do their initial work, they did it on Amazon Web Services and they got a bill for all of that work for $7.42. That was the difference in 2009 versus 1999. Now we'll look back forward another seven or eight years and the cost has come down another order of magnitude. So technically, the ability to build robust, data-centric applications that can add value for big enterprises has come down so dramatically that it creates way more opportunity for entrepreneurs. And then you said about the sales and marketing development. How's that then developed? Yeah, I think that the universe of sales and marketing professionals has gotten far more rigorous and uh, structured in their thinking about sales and marketing than back in, in my day of building profit logic. Is that due to the rise of kind of data and data availability? I think it is more due to the fact that recurring revenue businesses are more predictable than perpetual license businesses. And in particular, the more high velocity those businesses become, the more data points there are against which to measure the efficiency of your sales and marketing operation. In the in the old days of doing big deals, even if they were recurring revenue deals, which they were periodically in my old business, we simply said, hey, if a salesperson can sell a five or six million dollar deal, that certainly seems to pay for itself. So let's do a bunch of those. And that was about as sophisticated as we got. In today's universe, obviously, there is way more data against which to track the efficiency of your sales operation. And because so much money is typically being spent to fuel growth for these SaaS companies, the understanding of that sales efficiency is fundamental to how these companies are valued and viewed. Can I ask, do you think the sales process has changed fundamentally itself in terms of the length, the point of contact, CIOs, kind of the rise of bottoms up? Have there been fundamental changes, do you think, in terms of actually selling to enterprise? I'm torn on that topic. It's easy to say yes, and certainly there are examples where the consumerization, so to speak, of applications has led to more of a bottom-up approach inside enterprises, where individual users can adopt an application and over time work groups or departments adopt it and then the technology company can come in and do an enterprise deal but it's sort of brought up through the floorboards and that happens. Yammer was an interesting example of that. There's been many others but saying that to me the process of selling a big ticket application to a big enterprise whether that is done on a perpetual basis or a recurring revenue basis hasn't changed much. It is still about building relationships 
relationships, understanding customer needs and pain points, proving value, and then setting a price that feels appropriate given the value that you've proven you can create. That was true 10 years ago. That was true 20 years ago. That was true 30 years ago. It's true today. Can I ask, do you think the time to value has changed in terms of people now want more immediate time to value sequences than in in previous years? I think it has because the technology has enabled it to be faster. Implementation cycles are typically much, much faster than they were a decade ago. APIs and pre-configured applications and the ability to ingest large amounts of data and and configure solutions on the fly is far more possible today than it was a decade ago. So the vendor ability to deliver quick time to value has improved. And as a result, the customer's expectation, I think, goes along with that. And then talk to me, we said about the third and final aspect in terms of the development. And this is particularly fascinating given your two-seated side of the table in terms of being an operator and an investor now. How have we seen the investing landscape develop and change? Well, I think that investors are far more sophisticated now about the underlying metrics that imply health or lack of health of these SaaS businesses. The fundamentals of what makes sales efficiency operate inside a SaaS business are now well understood by most investors. And those fundamentals are generally interrogated in a fair level of depth during the diligence process for any investor who's looking at a company. So while I think the sophistication level on the metrics has improved across the venture investing community. At the same time, I think investors can get lost in the data and at times hang their hat on the data and lose sight of the bigger picture with many of these businesses. There is still a fundamental requirement for a real value prop, real defensibility, real ability to prove ROI and a great team that drives success of any great technology company. And whether the fundamentals are really strong, sort of strong, or kind of weak, those broader macro pieces of the puzzle for a startup to me still make all the difference. But I am pleased you said about metrics because although downplaying potentially their their importance alongside other elements, I do want to touch on this as it's something that as as you know the, the industry is so focused on. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on kind of the single most important metrics for you when evaluating an investment opportunity in terms of in the enterprise field. You know, I don't think there is a single metric that matters most, but if you put a gun to my head and said, Scott, pick one, I'd probably say payback period is the one that feels most important to me in assessing a SaaS business. There are many companies that can hang their hat uh, successfully on the LTV to CAC ratio, and there are a lot of assumptions around the tenure of a client and the churn rate that leads to that LTV calculation. But how capital intensive it is to build a business is predominantly captured in the payback Period. What payback? That, period, what payback period levels are exciting to you? To me, less than twelve months is almost a fundamental requirement, uh, and more than twelve months implies a level of capital intensity that I think it's very challenging as a company grows. No, I agree. If we were to apply that to sales reps, how how long is a is an effective sales back period in terms of the sales rep? That's a hard one because I'm involved in businesses where the sale itself is very straightforward. It's a lower ticket item from a price point standpoint. It's an inside sale and a sales rep can generally get productive in two to 
three months and start hitting numbers. I'm involved in other businesses, which are very, very large transactions, very complex enterprise sales. And a sales rep might take six to nine months to really be in a position to close their first deal. So I don't think there's a generalization on that topic that makes sense. Absolutely. No, that's fair enough. But how important a role does then unit economics play? It's often a a term touted around today in in this kind of sustainable environment that we're supposed to live investing wise. How important a role does uh, unit economics play for you in terms of your investing mindset? Unit economics are a piece of the puzzle and certainly not the whole puzzle. And I say that because the unit economics have to make sense over the long run. You have to believe that even if unit economics aren't fantastic today, there are reasons why with scale they improve. But I often think as investors, we can lose sight of the bigger picture if we focus too much on unit economics. Often a very simple assessment of the P&L tells you a lot about the efficiency of the company. And while unit economics may look very, very positive and have a path to improvement over time. If the company is continuing to bleed cash for the foreseeable future, despite strong unit economics, to me, that raises other important questions that also have to be assessed. What does the assessment of the P&L look like to you on a, on a kind of a basic metric? There is a fundamental sales efficiency, sales and marketing efficiency point of view that I think tells a lot about the company. And, and I think many investors would suggest this is too simplistic or too blunt an instrument. And by by itself, it probably is. But if I simply add up on an annual basis, all of my spend on a gap revenue basis, all of my spend on sales, on marketing and on customer success, and I compare that to the new incremental gross margin dollars that I'm generating by new sales, I get a very simple sense of sales efficiency. I spend a ton of money and in return for that money, I generate a new amount or incremental amount of profitability in a given year. And that ratio to me is quite telling about the efficiency of the business. But I, I do want to move into one of my favorite elements of the interview, and it's the 60 seconds faster. So it's a quick fire where I say a simple statement and you give me your immediate thoughts in about 60 seconds per one. How does that sound? Sounds fantastic. So let's do greenfield opportunities in SaaS. What are they to you? I think there continues to be tremendous opportunity to bring more data and more machine learning capabilities into applications across the SaaS universe. The term AI, artificial intelligence, has an immense amount of buzz right now. To me, it is no different than what we were doing at ProfitLogic 15 years ago, what many of our portfolio companies have been doing over the last 10 years. But the ability to take disparate data sets of massive proportion and integrate them to drive insights into all parts of, the, of a business operation has never been easier, faster, or cheaper. And so I think across the SaaS landscape, you are going to see new generations of companies, technology companies built that have a more sophisticated ability to drive insight for business leaders than their predecessors. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started investing? Tons. <laughs> I Having been an entrepreneur for much of my career and now an investor for 10 years, it's shocking to me how much I continue to learn every year in this job. It's amazing to me how much pattern recognition matters in the world of investing and how the benefit of a decade of working with startup companies and sitting around the table and working with management teams helps me be a better board member and better advisor to those companies going forward. Can I ask a really hard question? And it's one I struggle with. And it's how do you balance pattern recognition with an observance that outliers often don't fall within those patterns? It's a great question. I think there is a piece of pattern recognition, which is exactly that, that some of the best opportunities aren't ones that fit into a comfort zone or a sector or a stage that is typical 
for the organization. But in those opportunities, there is often a piece of pattern recognition that does hold, and that is around the entrepreneur. I have personally, and we have as a firm, invested in a variety of companies where the innovation that is being commercialized or being invented isn't something we have any experience with, but the entrepreneur is the type of person that we have seen be incredibly successful before. And that combination has really been powerful for us. What's your favorite SaaS reading material? What, when it comes in, do you instantly get excited by? You mean other than your podcast? I mean, that's very kind of you. I promise you I didn't pay to say that. Uh, but uh, yeah, other than the podcast, what are the, the really exciting ones for you? I don't read anything about SaaS. Candidly, I spend most of my time in a very specific set of domains, and most of what I read and enjoy keeping up on has to do with those domains. In my case, that is everything in the world of commerce, both B2B and B2C, as well as everything in the world of AI and machine learning and building data-centric businesses. Are there any AI ones you'd recommend? It's one I'm, I've, I'm started listening to Talking Machines, an AI podcast. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, you'd love it if you're into AI. Uh, and then what, finally, what's the biggest advice you give to SaaS? founders scaling their businesses? My biggest piece of advice for any entrepreneur, any founder who is selling technology to the enterprise is that you cannot overspend on customer success, especially in the early days of a company. The amount you invest to make customer successful early on pays dividends in dramatic fashion over time. And the cost, the potential cost of a failed customer early on is almost impossible to calculate. To me, there is not enough venture money in the world to dig you out of the hole of a failed early implementation as a SaaS company selling to the enterprise. And by the same token, if you knock it out of the park successfully with early marquee clients, everyone finds out. Whether you tell your story yourself or others tell it on your behalf, the world understands very quickly that you've added huge amounts of value. There's no replacement for that in building a company. Can I ask, do you think companies when starting out, do you think they should do the badge collection element of getting the Dropbox, the Box, the Marketos of the world as clients? Or do you think they should really just build up their sales team's confidence with lots of more little uh, kind of customer acquisition uh, attempts? I don't think there's a right answer on marquee clients versus lots of other clients. I think both matter in different ways. For sure, for an early company, winning a marquee logo or two in the domain that you play in makes a huge difference. Marquee customers are referenceable and looked at in ways that unknown companies just aren't. And so uh, a mix makes sense. But I think it is worth the extra effort to knock off the marquee clients because of the signaling that represents both for future customers and for investors and employees. Mm-hmm. No, I, I do agree. But I do want to, and moving out of the quick fire here, I'm so thrilled you said about the customer success there because it's a particular passion point for me. So in terms of the customer success, when is uh, the right time to, to hire? Is it pre-sales team? Is it one of the founding team? What are the thoughts around the formation of a, a, a CS team? Customer success usually lives in the founding team early on, as does sales and as does everything else. And so how and when you formalize that often depends on the the core capabilities of the founding team. Uh, What I found in my own experience and what I've seen across my portfolio is that founders get uh, very quickly get overwhelmed with the relationship maintenance 
and customer success oriented activities associated with their early accounts. And so I have yet to see a successful high growth company that didn't hire professionals in customer success too late and didn't wish they hadn't hired, had hired them earlier. So early is better. I think having customer success in the series A phase of the company front and center is super important and formalizing that capability even earlier often makes sense. And then a super contentious question within customer success to finish. And it's, do you agree that customer success should not be involved in the upsell process or do you think they should actually play an active role in kind of engaging uh, further upsell opportunities? I wish I had a great definitive answer on that front because I've seen it done both ways and I've seen it have different implications depending on the type of sale and the type of solution. Can I ask, what, uh, what were those individual cases? Don't say the names, obviously, but but in terms of sure. how they played out. I'm involved in a handful of large enterprise-oriented application software companies, big ticket companies, where customer success has a fundamental impact on upsell uh, and retention over time. And the people involved in customer success who need to be on the ground people fundamentally have to wear a sales hat in some capacity. By the same token, I'm involved in a handful of high-velocity, smaller price point SaaS businesses where the handoff between the hunters in sales and the retention-oriented folks in customer success is explicit and important. But in that case, there is less dramatic importance associated with customer upsell. Scott, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. As I said, I was so looking forward to this, so I can't thank you enough for joining me. It really has been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I hope the the comments were useful for the audience. And I look forward to continuing to be a huge fan of your podcast. Such a pleasure to have Scott on the show today, and I cannot thank him enough for all he's done for me and the show. And again, a big hand to AJ Agrawal for the intro today to Scott, without which the episode would not have been possible. And if you like the episode today with Scott and would like to see more from us, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs, or you can check me out on mojitovc.com. I'd absolutely love to hear your thoughts and feedback on that. Likewise, you can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. But for now, we so appreciate all your support, and we look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode.